Thank you for joining us as we elevate the Black entrepreneur experience by interviewing CEOs, thought leaders, innovative thinkers, and Black entrepreneurs across the globe. I'm your host, Dr. Francis Richards. Our next guest is Grammy-nominated musician, producer, writer, and created, uh, creator of Moja, a music saga. Welcome, Carl Gustinson. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Richards. I'm very excited to talk to you today. One of the things I'm going to ask you when you're talking, when I'm talking, I'm going to have you put it on mute. And when you're talking, you unmute it. And the reason that'll give us a better sound quality, okay? Yeah, I got you. Okay, so I've given our audience such a brief bio. Why don't you fill in the gaps and share with our audience what you want them to know about you and your music saga? Well, I'm going to just start with the music saga. I have always been an adventurer, traveling all over the world. I've been to 44 countries, and... I need to turn off my clock, but <laughs> it's it's ringing midnight. Um, I've traveled all over the world, and uh, I've been an adventurer all my life, and I've also been a musician. And I created a story that tells the journey of African-influenced music. What I wanted to do was to discover all about the music that I've loved since I was a young man and find out where it came from and more importantly, how and why it came about. And I discovered that the why became the most important factor because the circumstances of the creation of this music took me deep into African history and the whole diaspora, the enslavement, the coming to America and how it, there was a, an American diaspora as well, and then how it's gone on around the world. And so this, this is a story that tells that journey. When you talk about history, Carl, what is the most fascinating um, fact that you found out with African history? Well, when I went over, I wasn't even interested in history. When I went to Africa, I was only interested in the music. And I guess historically, where did it come from? But I, I didn't tie in the history that made the music. And when I got to Africa, I found out that the music was created through uh, stories of creation. Where did we come from? Uh, it was created through religion. It was created through uh, communication, like mountaintop to mountaintop, like Morse code. And uh, there were tremendous stories of culture behind this music. And then as we went forward and Europeans came to Africa and uh, the Islamic world came to Africa and slaves began to leave Africa, uh, the music then took on a different history. And I could tell you just a brief little incident of what I'm talking about. When I was in some of the dungeons that the enslaved people were kept in while they were waiting for ships to go to uh, America or South America or, or wherever, China, India, Saudi Arabia, um, when they were being kept in these dungeons, they were it was horribly claustrophobic. It was dark. It was very hot. Uh, I saw dungeons where there were ditches dug the entire length of the dungeon, and then the people would have to put straddle those ditches sitting on them, and then they were chained together, and their legs would go around the legs or the waist of the person in front of them. So they're only about six, eight inches behind that person. And then when they had to uh, eliminate, all the human waste would go in those ditches and a little water would run through there. And so the filth would just constantly be going underneath these people. In the midst of the heat, in the midst of the claustrophobic conditions, then they separated the tribes so that they couldn't talk to each other. 
So a music began to form called call and response, where they would they would shake these chains in a rhythm, and then somebody would call out in the language of their tribe, and somebody far away would hear that and answer in song, and then they learned to. Uh, support each other, even if they were in a different language as they communicated. And this w- enabled them to keep their sanity because I was about to go crazy. And uh, this this room was made for maybe to hold 60 people max, and they would have 300 slaves in there. And I was in there with maybe five or six and I was about to uh, lose my mind in the place. So I could imagine the medicinal qualities of that music as they were able to get the rhythm going and talk to each other and communicate and support each other and uh, g- share the courage and the love. And so that music was created. And that's what I'm We can multiply this times every event that occurred during the journey from, let's say, the enslavement clear through to America or wherever they went, uh, different kinds of music, like music of the Koffel gangs. Koffel means caravan. So they had a different music uh, and a different rhythm when they were walking down these slave trails, carrying tusks. They had a different music when they were put on a Gandhi dancing crew and building railroads and they would swing the hammer and make a rhythm with the hammer. And then another rhythm with the chains that had their ankles and one guy would call and the other would respond. And, but it was still a different kind of music. So all these forms of African influence music had a why behind them. And that's what fascinated me. Um, And we want to thank our listeners for joining in. And if anyone has a question for Carl or myself, let us know. Carl, you talked about the why of the African slaves. Someone is listening to this interview and they say, why is this Caucasian man talking about this subject? What qualifies Carl to talk about this subject? You're on mute, Carl. I have a, that's a very good question that I haven't really been asked a lot yet because I've been in the production of this. And when you're in production, nobody knows what's going on. But when you release it and then people find out, wow, this guy was white. <laughs> what is he doing doing this? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that this is a novel this is, and we call it a saga. We call it a music saga, but a saga is a form of a novel. It's kind of a grand form, but this is a novel and it's a, a long story that you have to get engaged in and uh, get hooked on. It's almost like watching a Netflix series. It takes 10 hours to listen to this whole thing. So I consider myself a novelist. And this is what novelists do. We do research and then we write vicariously. But the research involves all of the people who know who know, and who were there and who understand or are of that ethnicity or whatever. So I'm going to tell you this. There are over 500 musicians on this project. Think about that. Over 500 from many, many countries, all over Africa, all over Cuba, Europe, all over the United States, almost all of them are black. There are 41 editors, I think, all but one of them is black. My two executive producers, Bobby Rush, two-time Grammy winner, Blues Hall of Fame, is black. My other uh, executive producer, Weedy Brema, is from Ghana, Africa, and he is black. Uh, the black contribution to this is overwhelming. And the one thing I'll say that I did 
was that I didn't go into this saying, I know more than you. I know better than you. Uh, I didn't do that. I researched and let them tell me. Another factor is that this story wasn't really written by me. I more or less recorded it because it was written by the lives of the many, many enslaved people, the uh, African people, the modern, even down to modern day American, uh, black Americans. And they lived the story. And I just wrote about what they lived and died for. Now I'm going to give you one last thing that I think qualifies me in a sense. And that is that when I was 16, I ran away from home and I didn't know where to go. My father was a concert pianist and we got in a fight over music, ironically. And he literally kicked me out of the house. The only place I knew to go was down to First Street in the city where I lived. And there was a little after-hours cafe. It was kind of an illegal cafe. Well, it was illegal, but the police kind of winked at it. It was owned by a black lady named uh, Miss Peggy. And her Miss Peggy's place was called the Pickerib. And I went down there, and she took me in, loved me. Uh, she allowed me to be who I wanted to be, not who my dad was trying to make me be. And I loved her immediately. And she became a surrogate mother to me and called herself my black mama. And then later on, I had another black mama named Miss Blues, Dorothy Ellis out of Oklahoma, who uh, loved me in the same way. So I, I was kind of adopted into this and I was taught the music by black women. I was taught uh, jazz and R&B and soul and blues and New Orleans brass and all kinds of roots music. And I fell in deeply in love with it. And so those are all reasons why I ended up uh, writing this. Carl, I want you to have a monologue I want you to name this person living or not. And this person has inspired you so much. Name the person and what are you saying to that person? You're on mute, Carl. I'm so sorry. I'm I, I may be able to write novels, but I can't do technical things. <laughs> I, I'm going to choose Bobby Rush here. Uh, he has been my friend for decades, and he has been a huge influence on me, not only musically, but as a human being. And the reason that I would choose to emulate him is because he had a real hard time when he was a young man. His wife was raped. Uh, she kind of went crazy from it. Uh, the man who raped her was taken away and disappeared uh, in vengeance, uh, not by Bobby, but by someone else. Um, he tried to support his three little girls when he was just a young man. He's only like 19, 20, and his wife who had been being raped. And all three of his daughters got pneumonia from the hawk off Lake Michigan. That's what they call the wind in Chicago. And they all died, all three of his little daughters. And he, he felt bitter and angry and full of self-recrimination because he couldn't protect his family and hatred toward uh, the police, the white man, man, toward God, toward mankind in general, toward himself. And he wanted to lash out, strike out. And many people in his circumstances have done that. They let their lives degenerate from that. But he didn't. He made a decision and he said, 
what does God value? And he thought about it and said, God doesn't value what we do. He doesn't see success like we see it. He doesn't see money as being anything. He has all the abundance in the world. What God values are things like compassion and love and forgiveness and charity and character. So he chose to look at himself and say, when it comes to compassion, then I can be a rich man because of what I've gone through. And I can give those riches to others. And he started, instead of being bitter, he started a prison ministry to counsel other men who'd been through bad things, but then turned bad themselves because of it. And he chose to be a wonderful musician who thrills audiences all over the world. He he talks to them after the shows. He never goes away. Uh, he signs autographs until the last person is there. He counsels the people if they want right while they're in line. And he became one of the most loving, giving, beautiful human beings in the world because of his horrid circumstances. So nowadays, he lo- he loves all the races more than he ever did. He loves people more than he ever did. He loves God more than he ever did. He does more to bring people together and heal them and help them than he ever could have done if those things hadn't happened to him. I was in such admiration of what he did that I hold him up as the friend that I would name uh, to you that I admire and emulate. Um, would like to thank our audience for joining us. And if you have a question for Carl, feel free to um, share or feel free to let us know. Carl, take us down this um, journey with the music saga. Talk about the different genres of music and how they have been pit, um, impacted over the various generations and with culture and how you are tying this into your storyline. The Moja Music Saga, which, by the way, you can listen to right now uh, if you go to the website Moja Saga, M-O-J-A-S-A-G-A, Moja Saga. You can listen for free on there and uh, start listening to the volumes, or you can just go to Spotify or Tidal or Apple Music or uh, YouTube Music, Pandora, any of those, and listen uh, if you want to actually listen to the story. And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's an immersive audio experience. Uh, There's dialogue. There's 19 actors on this, including Darius McCrary, who was the older brother in the sitcom Family Matters. He was in Kingdom Come with Whoopi Goldberg. He was in uh, uh, Mississippi Burning with Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman. So this is the actor who plays uh, Satano. And he has his grandfather come after being absent many years and teach him about the legacy and journey of his family, which Satano knew nothing about. So he goes all the way back to 1853 in Africa, and that's where we take up our story. But you have to understand that when you start listening, you're listening to a dialogue, and it's immersive, meaning that it has sound effects. So if they're drinking cognac, you will hear the ice in the glass. If something drops, you will hear it hit the floor. If there's an ocean out there, you'll hear the waves. So it's an immersive experience. Then to enable you to feel the story as we go along, we we play uh, songs, and there are 75 uh, anchor songs in this. So it goes dialogue, song, dialogue, song. And there are I have written right down in front of me well over 50 genres of music that these songs represent. So there's going to be uh, everything from blues to bluegrass, 
from jazz to New Orleans brass, from Cuban big band to African uh, Afro pop to uh, ancient African folklore, uh, all the way to even country and Western, to rock and roll, old 50s rock and roll, modern rock and roll, hard, uh, hardcore rock, um, hip hop. And there's a there's a lot of hip hop because it takes place in a hip hop context, the the whole story. So over 50 genres of music, 75 anchor songs and 175 pieces of original music. If you count the underscore that goes under the dialogue, all of it's original music and lyrics. So what it does, though, is it follows how the music changed with the diaspora and the times and when it came to America and the circumstances, what happened at Congo square, what happened in Cuba to the music before it got to Congo square and at Congo square, it took a right turn and went up the Mississippi river and went to Memphis and St. Louis and on up to Chicago. And from there it started spreading all over the United States and eventually all over the world. So this is a story of triumph because now African-influenced music has literally conquered the music world. We talk about the the British will use the saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's what they said back when they had an empire. And, and you can say that today, the sun never sets on African influence music. It has conquered the world. It's a story of triumph. So we have all these different genres that you can listen to, things that are like Etta James used to sing or uh, uh, many of the uh, icons of the soul music and all of this. So you will hear characters who portray the ones who made and sang and distributed these music. And they go through trials and tribulations and all of the experiences that actually happen. This is a fictional story. However, there, all the dates are true. You can check them out. All of the historical characters are true. The, uh, if I say there are so many ships that came up the river during the Civil War to New Orleans, check it out. That's how many ships there are. All of that is true. So I can say that this story never happened exactly this way once, but it happened thousands, maybe millions of times in many different eras and countries as uh, the enslavement and the diaspora occurred. So it, all of these things are taken from true episodes. I just put it into an easy to understand story with characters you will get to know and love and, and in some cases hate, you know, and you will learn how the music came about. And Carl, how has music, how has music shaped your life personally? When I was young, as I said, my dad was a uh, concert pianist and he tried to get me interested in uh, the classics. He, he loved Beethoven. He could sight read Rachmaninoff piano concertos. And if you've ever seen a Rachmaninoff piano concerto, you will know that they look like somebody took a shotgun and shot the page. That's how many notes there are. You know, it's just an amazing amount of notes. And he could sight read that. And he expected me to follow in his footsteps and go places that he never went because I came along. So I kind of ruined some of his dreams. So he was going to live them through me. And I rebelled and I, uh, love the rhythm and the feel, the visceral quality of uh, music that moved me. So I went in opposite direction and he condemned that. And he said, that's music of the devil. And uh, that's music of the lowbrow people, you know, uh, intelligent people don't listen to that. And so he, uh, I remember one time little Richard came on when I was a teenager and uh, he came on, he was singing, I don't, 
I think it was Long Tall Sally. And he was playing the piano and he was standing on the uh, piano bench and he, he was this outrageous character. And my dad went over and turned off the TV, which was one of those old black and white TVs. And uh, he turned off the TV and he said, you're forbidden to listen to any of those uh, black people and their music that I can't believe my son would listen to that lowbrow stuff. Well, that just made me want to hear it even more. So I began to get into, and then when I ran away and went down to Miss Peggy's place, oh boy, we listened to James Brown. We listened to Ray Charles. Uh, we just, one of my favorite dance songs was Quarter to Three by Gary U.S. Bonds. And we would dance around and she would say, uh, look at the dance that little white boy is doing. And and we would dance and she would try to copy me a little bit, you know, but I was learning from her and we would all laugh. And so music became a liberation for me and it, it filled my soul uh, with uh, exhilaration is, is the word I would use. It exhilarated me, but also it took me to a higher place uh, above the mundane. You know, it, it made, it took me to a delightful place. And I think, Today, we, you know, when we have such a dichotomy of opinion and everybody wants to be outraged and everybody wants to take anything that somebody else says and turn it into something outrageous and they should be canceled for it and all this, music can do the opposite of that. And that's what it did for me. An example would be if you go to a concert, you will see rich people, poor people, fat people, skinny people, black people, white people. Uh, people of high status, people of low status, bosses together with their employees, men, women, kids, old people, all of them together on the rail listening to the music, and they're all understanding that language, the language of music. That's why one of our songs is, music is the language of the soul. And then the second part of that is, Bringing mankind together is a glorious goal. And music can do that. And that's part of why and one of the biggest motivations I had in putting this project together is hoping that people do say, wow, we have so much in common. We all speak this language of music. We love it together. We move together. People, you see all the booties up there along the rail shaking. Not all of them good to look at, but... Uh, you know, they're shaking along at the rail and everybody is in agreement. Nobody's arguing. They're all loving it and they go away as a brotherhood. And so that's what music means to me. That's what it's done for me. And that's what I hope through this project I can take to the world. Thank you for that, Carl. And we want to thank our audience for joining. And if you have a question for Carl, don't hesitate to let us know. Carl, you gave us the name of one of the songs. Why don't you share some of the titles of the song in the um, Moja, a music saga, and pick out one or two, if you can, when you tell us the name and tell us the backstory behind the title of that song. Okay, I'm going to, I clicked my little button here. Uh, there's a song called You Can't Conquer Who I Am. And it's sung by Daime Arosena, a uh, wonderful, compassionate, empathetic singer from Cuba. She's 25 years old, going on 100. She's uh, a little tiny, like four foot six, but amazingly uh, an old soul and has such empathy. And I had her sing about a woman who had kids. She was taken, she was enslaved in Africa. She lost her children. She comes to Cuba. She's standing on the selling block in Cathedral Square, which is still there exactly as it was in 1853 when this song takes place. And she tell, she sings this song on the selling block. 
And she says, basically, uh, I, w- I am somebody. I know I don't look like it. I'll tell you about my father. I'll tell you about my mother. I am somebody. You can chain my neck. You can chain my legs. You can shame my name. But you can't conquer who I am. And when she sang that, it was so emotional that all of us in the studio cried. We couldn't quit crying. And then we went up and kissed her on the forehead and we couldn't quit kissing her. And she's so cute anyway, just precious. And that's just one of the 75 anchor songs. Hold on. I'm going to get your, uh, there we go. And Carl, I want to ask you, um, for the songs, are people able to download the songs? I know you said it's on Spotify. Can they purchase the songs? Do you have a soundtrack or anything to it? You're on mute, Carl. That's a little trick I'm not used to yet. Um, if, For example, if they wanted to go to here, you can't conquer who I am. They would just go to uh, volume two and... Uh, and find You Can't Conquer Who I Am on there. All the songs are in order. And and they could play that particular song. And I, I'm not sure because I haven't even done it myself, but because we just started releasing this volume, but I think you could uh, purchase that. And if you can't, I'm going to find out and make sure that you can. <laughs> okay, hold on. I'm going to get back to you. Dr. Richards right now. And um, Carl, on that, if let's say if someone has questions or they're trying to download or they're having challenges, should how should they connect with you or tell us the process? Okay, they can they can write directly to Moja Music Saga on the website, and we have someone who will answer their questions. And if they want uh, right now because we have just started, I would even field questions myself. They can go to my, uh, they can text me at roses and pencils or uh, email me at roses and pencils at gmail.com roses, plural and pencils. I have a, always have a big bouquet of roses on my desk and a big cup of pencils. Cause I write with pencil so I can erase. So roses and pencils at gmail. They can ask me directly, but they can also go to Mojasaga, M-O-J-A-M-O-J-A-S-A-G-A.com and ask questions there. Thank you so much for that. What is the one thing that you do that is impacting people's lives? Well, when when the last five years, last, actually almost six years now, uh, everything I've done to impact people's lives has been associated with this Moja project because I've traveled uh, coast to coast in Africa. Uh, I've been to Egypt, to Zanzibar, to Tanzania, Kenya, to uh, Rwanda, Uganda, Ghana, Mali, Senegal, Toga, Ivory Coast, uh, and and more than uh, Kenya. You know, places I'm forgetting. And meeting people and uh, influencing them, I hire them to help me. I've got African artists who are drawing pictures for me, and I pay them, and they are greatly appreciative. You can't imagine the poverty level of some of those countries over there. It would amaze uh, Americans. You know, they'll tell me, well, I know poverty. I've, I've been down to Tijuana, Mexico, and there's a lot of poverty there. Tijuana looks like Disneyland compared to a lot of these African countries. And 
so I'm, I help people while I'm there. I hire musicians. I've hired over 500 musicians and 40 engineers and many people connected to that artists and translators. I, uh, I, I had one whole song translated into Swahili. I even learned some Swahili myself. You know, Nina Faraha Kukatana Nawe. So I, I have, uh, helped many of these people through this project. And in Africa, they love this project. When I took one of the songs back to a town named Bagamoyo in Tanzania and played it for them after we had made it, and it was about their town, even though it was uh, the negative, horrid times of when it was the distribution point for slaves over to Zanzibar, uh, they had taught me the lessons, the townspeople taught me, the scholars there taught me, the uh, primitive people taught me. They showed me the things like the uh, trough that the enslaved would have to kneel down and drink with the animals, with the cattle, with the dogs, uh, with the goats, and then there would be the slaves, and they would throw buckets of water on them to clean off the excrement and the vomit and uh, the urine, and they just throw buckets of water on them there. I went there. I was taught by those people. So when I took the song Bagamoyo back to Bagamoyo, I played it for one of my guides. He started getting other people to come and come and hear this. They made me play it again and again and again. And the crowd kept growing. Finally, we went into a tavern and the tavern got packed. And then the people started singing the chorus along with it. They got to know the song. They were singing the chorus. They were crying. They followed me down the street like I was the Pied Piper because they loved the fact that somebody came in and was trying to right the injustices that were done in their town. And so when you ask, like, even today, I'm going down to Western Union after this to pay a man in Africa uh, to help save his wife from cancer because he translates for me. And he... Uh, I've already done things like that to help him because those people supported me, gave to me, gave me their uh, innermost feelings and uh, from uh, professors at colleges all the way to the Dogons who dance on stilts and have 10 foot high masks on, on top of the stilts. It's an eerie looking sight. And they, uh, did that for me when they're very private people and don't do that for many tourists. So I help these people. I I give harmonicas to the children. I teach them how to play it. You know, they follow me around. Much influence. And I've done that in Europe. I've done that in Cuba. I've done that all uh, in other places in the United States. But this project captures people's imagination gets them excited, makes them want to hear it. Uh, they People love truth. I found that out. They love truth. And James Michener, the famous uh, novelist from years back now, but he told me, I met him, and he told me, I write fiction so that I can tell the truth. Because if he wrote it as a documentary, he would have to cover up a lot of stuff so families wouldn't get offended and nations wouldn't get offended and people wouldn't sue him and somebody come assassinate him. So he wrote it as fiction so he could tell the truth. People love truth. And now there's truth coming out about the music of Africa and the story behind that music in Africa. And those people are excited about it, and it's changed a lot of them, and we're able to help them. So when you ask the question, what do I do to help and change, this project itself has had a magical, charismatic type of change uh, toward everybody who got involved with it, whether performer or support cast. You know, Carl, someone is listening to this interview and, and, and you said people love truth. 
And there has been across the United States so many bills introducing introduced to um, ban how institutions and schools talk about slavery and racism. And so someone is saying, how can Carl say that people want truth? So talk about that. I say people want truth. I'm not talking about politicians, for one thing. I'm not talking about a lot of the media people who, who they want. They don't want truth. They want to sell whatever they're selling. They want to advance in the ranks because they got a story. And story comes from conflict or something steamy, you know. When I say people want truth, I'm talking about the salt of the earth people, like people that don't, that can't write an article for some big magazine, people that don't have a voting agenda or something, but people who know the truth because their ancestors and them live in it and did live it and know that what's being told about it isn't right now and has never been right. And now somebody comes along and says, let's tell the truth. That's why I say they like truth. And I'm going to tell you this. I grew up in the state of Wyoming. Now, I, if, if this broadcast gets back to somebody in Wyoming, they may not like me too much for this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And they can't deny it either. If they come from Wyoming, they can't deny it either. I grew up in the cowboy state. That's our nickname, the cowboy state. I went, I learned Wyoming history all through grade school, all through junior high, all through high school, and I was a history minor in college, and I never knew there was a black man in Wyoming before Wyoming football players were recruited. Then I find out that we have pictures of many black people in Wyoming that there were black cowboys. There were black soldiers at the early Fort Warren. I have pictures of my friend Billy Branch's uh, uh, ancestors who are sitting on horseback. One of them rode for the Pony Express. Um, the Buffalo soldiers were involved in, in Wyoming's greatest war and conflict as a state, the Johnson County War, they called in an all-black Buffalo soldier unit to come in and help quell that. They're, they fought Indians in Wyoming. They were part of the West in every single way. Almost 20 to 25 percent of cowboys in the Old West were black, as we now are finding out, and yet not one mention of it in the history books that I was taught in growing up in the state of Wyoming. I went to the movies as a kid. Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Hopalong Cassidy, all these, not a black person in them. Uh, the only black guy that kept showing up occasionally in a John Wayne movie or something was Woody Strode. Other than that, you wouldn't think there was a black man in the West. All the heroes were cowboys. They never lost a fight. Uh, and there, there weren't any black people. In the history books, there weren't any black people. In the novels, weren't any black people. So that's not the truth. And, and now I think people want that truth. They, they want to say, wow, if that was the truth, I want to know about it. I want to, I want to deal with it. I want to understand it. If you're black, you want to be proud of it. So when I say people want the truth, I don't think anybody I know really wants to be lied to. Carl, you ended up down in the in the um, wrong section there. I'll invite you to speak again. You there? 
I put you back where the speaker, not the listener. We have a caller. Okay, caller, do you want to ask the question? Carl, do you, are you there, Carl? Can you hear me? Carl, you're on. All right, can you hear me now? Yeah, you were on okay, mute. Good. So I don't know how you got into the listener section. There you go. Okay. I don't either. I, I didn't even touch my the mouse or the screen. I just did it. Okay, so did you hear the question or you want me to repeat it? Well, you'll you'll have is, to repeat it. I didn't hear it. That's okay. What is your most costly lesson you've learned in life? Oh, I think, you know, that, that is a that is a really heavy question because it's saying costly. I I think the the lesson the most costly is that when you're young, you really think you can get away with anything, uh, whether it's desecration of a marriage or child rearing sins or uh, something you do with your employment. You think you can get away with anything. There's this false sense of uh, entitlement or who you are or the fact that you can uh, oh, it's going to be all right. And I had to learn the hard way that there is cause and effect. And I've been a cause and effect man ever since. Uh, if you do things bad for your marriage, you you are going to lose that marriage. If you do things bad for your country, you are going to lose that country. If you do things bad for your body, you are going to lose that body. And if you do things bad for your reputation, you are going to lose that reputation. And that has cost me. It cost me a marriage. It cost me, a, I was a long time getting a relationship back with my children. Uh, it cost me employment, uh, my career for a while. It, it cost me a lot to learn that lesson because I had a certain arrogance that I am greater than cause and effect. I am greater than societal norms. I can break whatever laws I want to. Uh, I, you know, I am above my, uh, the place in reality. So that would probably be the most costly. And I really opened up a little bit <laughs> there, maybe too much, but uh, I spent 10 years wasting my life in, self-recrimination and depression and uh, uh, sorrow and uh, anger and all of that. And that helps nobody. It helps nobody when you do that. You just have to accept your mistakes, make your adjustments, go forth and be the best person you can and learn from those lessons. And then you can start helping people again and helping yourself. Carl, what is your biggest takeaway from our conversation today? What do you want the audience to leave with? Well, I want them, I absolutely want them to go listen to this program because I can talk uh, and words are cheap. And we all know that. And, and you could say, ah, this guy's full of himself or this guy's just trying to pitch a story or... I don't think it's going to be really all that. And I just urge people, actually go listen to it. It's called Moja, a music saga. And I spent actually 20 years, because Bobby Rush and I started talking about the creation of this 20 years ago. But I spent the last six up to my ears in this all over the world in multiple recording sessions, hundreds and hundreds of people 
writing this story, correcting it, refining it, getting the people who know better than myself to say, hey, how about this? How about that? The story is beautiful. The music is beautiful. Let it teach you. Let it inspire you. Let it give you exhilaration. Let it lift you. Let it unite you. But let the story do it. And remember, the story was written by the lives of those people. You know, that's who wrote it. It really did happen to so many people. Now, some of the language is going to offend some people because I chose to make the graphics of violence, like the castration of certain male slaves, very evident, very immersive in that experience. I chose some of the language of the hip hop artists to be just the way they talk. I couldn't have hip hop artists saying, oh, fooey and gall darn it and stuff like this. So get past that. That's the realism of it. And listen to the message. Listen to the lives. Because don't let those people die in vain. You know, don't let them have lived that miserable life in vain. Let them tell their story from the grave. And if they tell it through me, then I am blessed. But let them tell that story and listen to it uh, the way it's presented the best, not just me rambling on here on a talk show. We're, um, talk about raising capital to put this project together. Okay, now we're getting to the entrepreneurial side, which I was saying, I wonder how long I can avoid Dr. Richards and her entrepreneur program here. Uh, I knew you'd get to this. And, and this is definitely a big time entrepreneurial uh, uh, project because, uh, and one of the reasons I consider myself an entrepreneur is because I, I don't take orders well. Uh, you know, when I was in school, I didn't like teachers giving me orders or the principal. When I was in the Marine Corps, I didn't like you know, somebody that had a six months more in grade than I did telling me what to do. So I never was good at taking orders. So I have, I can tell you this, I have never called anybody boss. I've never said, this is my boss, or I have a boss. I've never, I've never had a boss. I've always been in charge of whatever. And I don't consider myself a boss either. I don't call myself a boss over anybody. I just say, wow, I have the good fortune to work with this person and use their strengths. And I try to get everybody's strengths working together and eliminate the weaknesses. And if I can get everybody just using their strength, then, then the whole team has strength. So I let people work where they shine. And I try to not have them work where they don't shine. And that doesn't sound like much of a, a academic statement. But if you think about it, <laughs> that's what counts. So how do I raise funds? One thing I'm going to tell you is that when you uh, put your name on the line for anything, you've got to follow through and you've got to make it good so that people learn to trust you. That trust takes time to build up. But once people trust you and they know that you're going to do what you said you were going to do, and and oftentimes, if not all the time, do it better than they anticipated you were going to do it. It's like when you go into a restaurant and you order uh, eggs and potatoes or whatever for breakfast and you get this delicious meal, way better than you thought you were going to get at that restaurant. You say, oh, wow, that makes my day. That's the way you have to be toward people when you're working with them. You deliver when you're asked to do something and people will begin to trust you. Once they trust you, they will start trusting you with their money. So that when you say, I can do this and it will not only, uh, you will not only not waste your money, but you will make money or everything I say I'm going to do, I'm going to do it and more besides. When you get that trust People will want to give you money. They'll be coming to you to give you money. And then you can dictate terms saying, okay, well, if you give me this much, this is what I'll give you. 
But if you think you can con people, if you think that you can make a promise on the if come, where you say, okay, if I can just get their money, then I can do it. And, you know, no, you have to build trust and you have to deliver. And when you do that, you're going to have no trouble raising funds. Uh, This project is not a major label project. I have done this through private investors and it has cost well over $2 million, probably two and a half million dollars. And every penny of it came from people wanting to give money to make it happen. And uh, so that would be my advice. Build that trust, deliver on your promises. Carl, if you conducted this interview, what is the one question you would have asked yourself? I want you to ask the question and answer it. I would ask probably something that I'm dealing with right now, and that is what toll has this taken on your soul to put this together? Uh, People don't think about that too often. You know, some things take a toll on you physically and and mentally and emotionally. And and when I say on your soul, it's uh, there's a, a certain weight that your soul carries. And it can either be you can either lighten it or it becomes very heavy. And on this project, because I have dealt with incredibly poor people in many countries of this world. Uh, I I have seen people so poor that they're selling, they find a dead animal and they'll cut its guts out and put it in a little homemade wheelbarrow and go sell it on the street with the intestines dripping out of the uh, wheelbarrow just to try to get enough money to make it through the day. And seeing seeing how many people in third world countries and and even in America uh, are not living a life of abundance, that they're, they're living a life of, of uh, desperation. And in some cases, misery, agony, poverty, all of this, this has taken a toll on my soul. And I realize how much we Americans could do uh, if we would quit bickering with each other over who gets the most money, what uh, quarterback in the NFL is getting 230 million instead of 260 million, what movie star gets 27 million for a picture instead of 20, uh, what how how much money Elon Musk has, uh, what the Democrats are going to do for us, what the Republicans are going to do for us. We uh, who who we're going to cancel next, uh, you know, because they said an off-color joke or what? I don't know what it is, but we bicker and we got outrage and all this, and we live in this fantastic land of abundance, and much of the world is in absolute desperation, trying to get by day to day. We can dream here. They can't dream. They just have to survive. We could do so much more for people if we would turn attention away from the pettiness, if we would turn attention away from our own little selfish pursuits and actually try to make the world a better place. You know, and that sounds so cliche. I'm almost sorry that I said it. But uh, we really can do it. And what the way I'm trying to do it is through music, trying to exhilarate people, trying to lift them up, trying to teach them, trying to uh, join them together to where they are speaking this common language. There's so much more we can do. So uh, that's the question that I would ask myself. What is the toll? I mean, it took a, a toll of money. It took a toll uh, mentally on me. It took a toll emotionally, uh, physically. You know, I'm not the man I was when I started this. And, and I am a 
physically fit human being. I'm 76 years old, but I play racquetball three times a week for two hours without stopping. But still, I look in the mirror and I say, wow, my God, Carl, you have really aged with this project. Because I have seen the suffering of the world. And I have seen the latent joy that is lurks right underneath the suffering, how easily and how quickly these people can be brought to smiles and laughter and fun and dreams with just a little help. I've done it. I've seen it. And I know it's there. I know it's possible. And uh, and but it weighs on my soul, Dr. Richards, It weighs on my soul. Thank you for that. And want to thank the audience for joining. Um, did anyone have a question for Carl? So what we'll do, we're going to move into what's called a rapid round of fun. I'm going to ask you, Carl, a series of questions, and I want you to give me very quick answers. If there's something you desire not to answer, feel free to say pass. Are you ready for the rapid round of fun? I am. Your first job? My first job was working on a cowboy ranch out here in Wyoming. I would go out and round up the cattle, bale hay, sharpen sickles for the mowers, things like that. The last movie you saw? Well, you probably would guess, (laughs) being uh, writing about African-influenced music, that Elvis was the last movie I saw, and I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad they brought in his uh, African-American influences, and uh, I thought it was really well made. You relax doing what? Well, I have a lot of ways to relax. I get a massage every week. I, I love to read, walk, but my main way of relaxing is watering the lawn and praying while I do it. And God has a way of teaching me through watering a lawn. When you start thinking about weeds and the way things die and the way things are born and grow and uh, what the, the good soil, the bad soil and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I relax and I learn at the same time. Your favorite singer or rapper? Well, my favorite singer of all time is James Brown. He had a tremendous influence on me and, and, uh, I, I loved his passion and I loved his magnetism, char- charismatic approach on stage, his dancing. But uh, Billie Holiday was my female. Uh, I still listen to her almost every day. I can't get enough of Billie Holiday. And then as far as rappers, you know, I, I, re- I really like Curtis Jackson, uh, 50 Cent. And, uh, but I, I think my favorite rap song right now is 99 Problems, Jay-Z. Uh, so it might surprise you coming from a 99-year-old white man, but a lot of the uh, context of my whole project is comes out of the hip-hop world. Your favorite dance song? I've had many over the years, and they keep changing. But when I went to the Grammys, and the, the Grammy party afterwards, it was a fantastic party. And Gloria Gaynor sang, I Will Survive. And every single human being in that party went up and danced. And she wouldn't quit singing it. And we wouldn't quit dancing. And I feel like I'm still dancing to it. I love that. What food do you eat every no matter what? I drink every morning when I wake up, I drink Fiji water because it's alkaline. And when I'm in a restaurant, I drink water with lemon in it because it's alkaline. I try to keep my body alkaline. So uh, all of my diet is based around water and it's usually alkaline water. Workout or hit the couch? What? I didn't hear that one. Workout or hit the couch? Oh my gosh. I work out six days a week. Uh, racquetball three days a week. I play softball one day a week. I lift weights five days a week. I walk, I bicycle. Uh, I am extremely active and uh, I loathe sitting on the couch. So at 76, uh, I can still dance, do the rubber leg, the boogaloo. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I am fit. So uh, yeah, not the couch for me. 
Carl, thank you so much for joining us on Black Entrepreneur Experience Live. Before we let you go, why don't you share with the audience the best way for them to connect with you and to do business and to definitely listen to um, Moja, a music saga. Give all social media handles, please. Okay, I just say, please go to mojasaga.com, M-O-J-A-S-A-G-A. Dot com. Start listening to it. You may have a little trouble because sometimes some of those platforms will throw random play at you. And if they do that, you're not going to understand it. You have to go in sequence. But there's volumes one through eight. Just start with the first part of volume one and go right on through volume eight. Get hooked on it like a Netflix series. Uh, and if you want to get hold of me, you can do throw, so through mojasaga.com. And you can also contact me through email at rosesandpencils at gmail.com. And I will, by the way, answer entrepreneurial questions because I have been in, I've been raising funds and uh, been in business since I was out of the Marine Corps as a young man. And thank you, Carl, for um, serving. We appreciate that. And that is a wrap. And again, we want to thank our listeners for joining in for Black Entrepreneur Experience Live. And feel free to connect with Carl. We thank you. That's a wrap. Okay. Can you still hear me, Ed? Uh, I can. I can hear you, Carl. Okay. Well, I really thank you for having me. I felt like I kind of... Uh, came down a little from this afternoon's conversation. Uh, I was all excited talking to you this afternoon. Then I uh, suddenly got hit with the fatigue of the trip I took to California. I just got back from, and I hope I didn't uh, let you down on that, but I think we covered a lot of good ground. You're an excellent interviewer. Uh, I love your questions and I, I love your show. I think what you're doing is very important and uh, I'm very happy to be a part of it. Thank you. And the audience heard that too. And I did not pay Carl to say that. that oh, is wow. Point. I didn't I didn't know they heard that. That's okay. <laughs> that is a wrap. And um, I appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Edna, Charlie, Carolyn, and Chai for joining in. And we will conclude. We appreciate you all. Have a great day. <laughs>